So this morning we return to John chapter 17 and Jesus' prayer, and we remember that we enter into a uniquely sacred place, and yet a place that Jesus himself invites us and calls us. So um, what a privilege. What a privilege this is. Uh, I believe, and I'm, I've just been so excited, this prayer is something, you know, you always read and you have a sense of, wow, this is, this is wonderful. And as I've been able to reflect on it, it's, it's been coming, I guess, alive to me in a way, and I, and I pray that it does the same for you and, um, and does its work in us as a result. So I, I really believe that the first five verses of this prayer are the key to understanding the rest of it. So if you, if you grasp those first five verses, you get it all. So before we go forward this morning, we're just going to go back briefly. And um, Jesus begins his prayer, praying these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And, and that's the verse that at first we could think, oh, wow, this doesn't have anything to do with me, does it? It has anything to do with the Father and the Son. And in a sense, in a sense, we're right. In a sense, what's this prayer about? What is Jesus concerned with in this prayer? That God be glorified. That the Father be glorified and that the Son be glorified. So in your handout, the entire prayer, keep this in your mind, is concerned with the glory of God. That's what the entire prayer is concerned with. And yet, here's the awesome miracle. How is God to be glorified? Be careful. We don't mean how is he to be made more glorious. God cannot be made more glorious, right? (laughs) He just is glorious, period. But how is he to be glorified? And the answer is this. He is glorified in the gift of eternal life that he gives to you. That he gives to me. And so he is glorified in us. John 17, 1-3. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then Jesus says, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So think about it like this. God is glorified not mainly by anything that you do or anything that you say. He is glorified primarily, first of all, by what he does, by what he gives to us. In your handout, the gift of eternal life, which is the gift of knowing him. That's a gift, brothers and sisters. Do we realize the gift it is to know him? That's his gift to us, and that is the gift of eternal life, to know him through the revelation he's made in Jesus. So God is glorified, we could say, when he is known. And this is the gift of eternal life. So it's in that light that Jesus goes on and he prays this. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Why does Jesus pray that? Remember, we asked last week, is this kind of some self-seeking in Jesus? Why does he pray this? 
because he wants you to be there with him and see that glory. He doesn't pray, Lord, let me be glorified just because. He prays, let me be glorified in your presence so that all, all of those to whom I give eternal life may one day be with me and see that glory. And what is it when we see his glory? What is that? That is the fullest experience of the eternal life you have right now. What Jesus is saying is, I want them, I, I want them to have eternal life to its fullest. I want them to enter into eternal life in its fullest one day. And so he prays this prayer. So we've come to know... Uh, okay, with, okay, in your handout, with these things we see, there's a sense in which God is glorified already. Because what do you already have? You have eternal life. You have it. So Jesus prays in verses 6 to 8. I have manifested... Finished work, right? I did it. Your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them. And they truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. What's the purpose of reciting all this? Of, you know, of all this, it's all done, right? He's saying it's finished. I did the work. I've glorified you by giving them eternal life. But now here's the question, brothers and sisters, and this is the way this chapter opens up to us. Here's the question. How are these men that the Father gave to Jesus from out of the world, and in this context we're talking specifically about the 11 disciples, that's why the translation I'm using translates men and not people. Because Jesus, in the context, is praying specifically for those 11 men. That's, that's what's in his mind. That's what, that's what he's talking about. But we can broaden it, certainly, in the end, to all of us. But so the question is, how are these men that the Father gave to Jesus to arrive at the goal of that fullest experience of eternal life. You know, when they're with Jesus and they see him and they see his glory, right? So remember, Jesus said, glorify your name, Father, and, and, and you're glorified when we give them eternal life. But how do they arrive at the goal of this eternal life? How does that happen? How do we get there? How do we get from here to there? That's what this prayer is all about. So on the one hand, I just want to say this, and we can look at the text before us. If you have eternal life now, can you ever fail to enter into the fullness of that eternal life in the future? If you have eternal life now, and ask yourself, do you have it? And if you have it now, is it possible that you could fail to ever enter into the fullness of it one day? Is that possible? And we know that it is not possible that such a thing could happen. And this is true, first, because of the sovereignty of God's grace. The the ultimate ground of your eternal life that you possess today is not to be found in a choice that you make. Though you do make a free and willing choice, haven't we all? If we're believing in Jesus, that was my free and willing choice. 
Okay, but, but that's not where my eternal life is ultimately grounded and rooted, brothers and sisters. Can you imagine saying that? My eternal life is rooted in the choice that I've made ultimately? No. It says that it's rooted in God's choice of a particular people to give to his son. And in that, I am secure. And there is no other place of security. What does Jesus say? I have manifested your name uniquely. Not to everyone have I manifested your name. But I have manifested your name uniquely to the men whom you gave me out of the world. What sublime peace there is in knowing that. This is true, secondly, because of the immutability and faithfulness of God. Who is God? Does he change his mind? Does he retract, right? We know he doesn't change his mind. Not in these ultimate ways, right? We can deal with other passages where he was said to repent or change his mind. But God says, I'm not a man that I change my mind. God doesn't give to you the saving knowledge of him and then say, now I'm going to take back that saving knowledge of me. God isn't fickle. He is not changeable. Your eternal life is rooted in the fact that he is the same and never changes. That's where it's rooted. Don't root it in you. And thirdly, this is true because of what eternal life is in itself. I'll just say this. If we know what eternal life is, and you say you have it now. We cannot be alive with eternal life and ever fail to live out that life that we have. That's just the way eternal life is working within us. And yet, here's the thing. Eternal life isn't something that works automatically. So, okay, you know, that's like the pray the prayer and you're good. Now, it's, now the clock just winds until we get to heaven. Eternal life doesn't work automatically, fatalistically, mechanically. Look at Jesus. What does Jesus do? This prayer, this prayer tells us a lot. What does Jesus say? I finished the work. I have finished the work you gave me to do on earth. And so does Jesus conclude from that that, well, I can rest easy now. I finished the work. I manifested your name. I gave them eternal life. They've believed. They've truly understood. Finished task now it's, now it's time to rest. Rest easy, right? No, that's, that's not how Jesus views it. It's not a reason for being apathetic about the future of those to whom he had given eternal life. He said, well, they've already got it. I don't... Instead, instead, this is the reason for earnest, persevering prayer. Right? The fact that Jesus could say, could speak of those, and I already just said this, they've kept your word. They've come to know everything you've given to me is from you. They've received the words you gave me. They've truly understood I came from you. They've believed you sent me. I've manifested your name. The fact that Jesus can say all that stuff is done is not a reason for presumption, but the ultimate reason for what kind of prayer? Do you, do you get the sense in this prayer that Jesus is kind of like, yeah, do this. I'd, I'd like it if you do this. I know you will. I know this is already a comp- I know it's already a done deal, so why am I even praying for this? Or do you think that Jesus knows and senses that this is essential and important, that he pray for this? Is Jesus just going through the motions? And so for us, how could we stoop to just going through the motions of the Christian life? 
How could we how could we have this sense of presumption that oh yeah well it's already done so I guess everything's guaranteed and we have that sense of well whatever that's not the sense that's not the approach Jesus took and it's not the approach that understanding God's sovereignty results in. So we see this in verses nine to ten when Jesus prays. I ask, brothers and sisters, here's the ground of our security. I ask. On their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. And why does Jesus ask? Why does he pray? For the very reason that some irrational people use to say, I won't pray. Why does Jesus pray? Because they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Can I just ask you, can you imagine any stronger statement of your safety and of your security than this one? Because who does Jesus pray for? Who does he pray for? For those whom the Father has given to him. Now you think about that. You think about it, right? This is a completed transaction. It says the Father gave them to Jesus. It's a completed transaction, brothers and sisters. It's a gift already given. And does God take back from Jesus a gift that he once gave to him? This is not for us to say, oh good, I'm safe. This is for us to say, oh, Lord, praise to you. I'm secure. I'm safe. Right. Jesus prays for who? Not only for those the Father gave him, but then he says that he prays for those who belong to the Father. And then he rejoices that all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. What do you hear in all all those words? Yours, mine, belong. Do you hear your security? This is an irrevocable ownership. And I just want to ask you to think about, could this not be true? Do you, do you see this, the truth of this? That those who belong to the Father can never cease to belong to the Father. Now, we could say, well, then do I have free will? Did God take away my free will once I became a Christian that I cannot choose to turn away from him? No. God, in fact, affirmed the free wills that he gave us underneath the the umbrella of his sovereignty. I don't understand that, but I love it. I don't understand it, but I'll preach it with all my heart. I don't understand it or comprehend it, but it is my peace and my joy, and I pray that it is your peace and your joy every day that you go through your life. Thirdly, Jesus prays for who? Who does he pray for? For those in whom he has already been glorified. What does Jesus say? And I have been glorified in them. Now, take that to your security. What do you think that means? To say that a day may come, possibly, when Jesus will no longer be glorified in those in whom he was once glorified. Like to say, oh yeah, Jesus was at one time glorified in those disciples, but not anymore. That is a slander against Jesus himself. 
So brothers and sisters, on the one hand, what do we see? We see that we're safe. It's good to be safe. We see that we're secure because of the sovereignty of God's grace, because of his choice, because we belong to him, because Jesus has been glorified in us. And yet, on the other hand, we see that God's grace doesn't work in an automatic, mechanical way. How does it work? There's nothing automatic or fatalistic about the Christian life. This is where we come to the balance that is difficult for us to grasp. There's nothing automatic about your future entrance into the fullness of that eternal life that you already have. It's not like an automatic thing. And we start treating it as if it is. That's a dangerous thing, and it may say something about our own hearts. We see this in the fact that Jesus, in your handout, prays for us. I mean, come on. Jesus knows the sovereign will of God. Jesus knows what he just did and that it was it, it, and is going to do, and it's acceptable to God. And yet, after all that, in spite of all that, no, because of that, he prays. He prays. He asks on our behalf, verse 11, and I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. So who cares, right? Who cares if we're in the world? It's a done deal. It's, it's all clinched. Work is finished. No, no, Jesus says, no. It's precisely because of what has been accomplished that now I pray because there's this danger that they're still in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me. What's, what's Jesus assuming here? He's assuming that this world is a dangerous place. That's, that's what he's assuming. Why pray this otherwise? That it's a real threat to you and to me. And by the world, we mean a system of values. Deeply rooted, uh, sometimes subtle, sometimes blatant but a system of values that is opposed to God, as well as the people who hold those values and promote those values. And so because because you live in this world, you live surrounded by threat, by, by danger, and not one that's physical or temporal, like maybe the world will hate me and kill me, right? No, it's, it's worse than that. The threat is spiritual and eternal. See, this is a chapter about eternal life. And so Jesus deals with that threat that the world brings to us of eternal death. And if this was something to be taken lightly, if we were to sit back and say, yeah, but I really know how it all turns out, and, and, and it's all good. If that's something to be treated lightly like that, we can be sure Jesus wouldn't be praying like he does. He wouldn't be asking on our behalf, Holy Father, Keep them in your name. In other words, Holy Father, while they're living in the world, keep them in something else. Keep them in your name. To keep then, what is to keep? It's to guard, to preserve to sustain, 
Do you see in this that your salvation is not something that happened once and was one and done? It's something that needs the continuing power, almighty power of God as it sustains, as he sustains you in that, in this world. The world in which we live threatens to mold us, shape us, subtly and blatantly, all sorts of ways, after its own priorities, after its own values. It's a constant work that's going on. It's a constant attack. And that can only result in death. And so do we realize the threat that is to living in this world? So what Jesus asks is this. What he he asks is this. Do not let them be pressed into the world's mold. But instead, Holy Father, sustain them. Sustain them. Hold them up in their true knowledge of you. Don't, don't sustain them in this static spot where they're sitting, right? No, no. Hold them up in their true and growing knowledge of you. Keep them in that, Holy Father, in this place of danger where they live. And do that this, in the true knowledge of your name. That's why he says keep them in your name. Notice again, notice how Jesus addresses the Father, Holy Father. There's a reason he does that here. Because when we truly know God, instead of being like the world, we're going to be set apart unto him. We're going to be holy as he is holy. So I thought about this for myself and, and for us, and, and I... It was convicting to realize this reality that I am either in the process, we're all in process, right? And I am either in the process of being conformed to the values and priorities of the world, which is spiritual death, or I'm being kept in the Father's name, and so I'm in the process, I'm in process of being conformed to his image and likeness and being made more like him. That's eternal life. And these are the only two alternatives, and there's zero common neutral ground between those two process. So what Jesus is praying then is this. In the midst of this dangerous, threatening world in which we live, oh, Father, keep them always living out that eternal life that I gave them. He's praying that the Father would sustain us while we're living in this world in the true knowledge of him. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may always be one, even as we are. And I really struggled with this. I don't know what you think about this. I struggle with why this is here. Why does Jesus suddenly introduce this theme of oneness here? And... um, I think the first thing it's important to see is he doesn't introduce this, this idea of, he doesn't pray that we might become one. Holy Father, make them to become one. No, if you look at the, at the Greek, the, the assumption is he's praying that, Lord, keep them one. Let them stay one forever. Let them always be one. So in other words, our oneness is in your handout the sign Not only that we have eternal life, but that we're being kept and sustained in that eternal life by the power of God. That's why Jesus prays this here. And and let's get a little context for it. John chapter 10. What does Jesus pray here? He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. 
Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. And then what does he say? And they will become one flock with one shepherd. Then John writes in chapter 11, very similar. Now Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you see how our oneness is like right at the heart of our salvation? Like when, God, when Jesus saves us, he saves us to be one. That's, that's the whole part of it. So here's the, here's the thing. If we should ever cease to be one flock, one flock, that would mean that who is no longer our shepherd? How many flocks does Jesus have? One flock. If we should cease to be one flock, Jesus is not our shepherd anymore. Jesus then prays that we would always be one flock. He would always be our shepherd. If we should ever cease to be gathered into one, then that would mean where are we? We're scattered abroad. And when we're scattered abroad, what's our destiny? We're eternally lost. Oneness is essential to eternal life. It's, it's a part of it. It would mean, if we were all scattered abroad and no longer one flock, that Jesus' whole sacrificial death on the cross was pointless. That it availed for nothing. Do you see that oneness matters? So our eternal life can never be separated from our oneness. We can't, we can't, we can't separate them. On the one hand, then, this oneness is an accomplished fact. And I just loved to think about this this week. And I invite you to love to think about it too, right now. If I've come to know the only true God and Jesus Christ to me sent, and if you know the same only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, then we are one. And that we can... We, I think a lot of times we tend to focus most on all the ways we're different. Now, we're different in a lot of ways. We're different in some pretty mundane ways, like, oh, you've got that quirk, and I've got this quirk, and we all have our quirks, right? And we're different in different ways. But then we also tend to focus on, well, they have that opinion, and they have this opinion, and I have this opinion, and they have that conviction, and I have this conviction. And so our, our differences in, in those more peripheral ways tend to be what we focus on, but I invite us for a moment to come to think on the thing that is most fundamental, most basic, and that is that we have all come to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And that makes us one. Put it this way, if you're being kept, if you are being kept in the name of the Father, the name which he gave to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if I'm being kept in that same name, then we are what? We are one. I, we ought to celebrate that more. We ought to just think about it more and be like, wow, that is really wonderful. That is a miracle, right? Our eternal life, again, cannot be separated from our oneness. But here's the thing. This, this, this oneness isn't just an accomplished fact. It's not just like, oh, we're one. Cool. So we can sit back and relax, right? It's something that we live 
We live this oneness in our relations with one another. That's the way it works. And so Jesus prays that they may always be one. What does he say? Even as we are. Now he said it, so we've got to deal with it. What did he mean by that? Let me put it this way. How are Jesus and the Father one, brothers and sisters? How is the Son and the Father one? Well, in two ways. Related. And you cannot separate the two. The Father and the Son are one in being. How many gods are there? One God. So the Father and the Son are one in being. That's a fact. But this oneness of being is not just like some abstract idea, metaphysically, out there. It's not just something like that. It's a oneness that is lived. Does God live that oneness in a way that becomes visible to us? Yeah, he does. It's lived in relationship. And so all throughout John's Gospel, what do we see between the Father and the Son? We see not only a oneness of being, but a oneness that's, that's lived in actual practice. We see a oneness of love, uh, that they are one in purpose, that they are one in action, in endeavor, in mission. They are one in word. And so in a similar way, not an identical way, we're not one in being, right? None of that stuff. But in a similar way, this oneness that we have of eternal life, because your eternal life is my eternal life, the name that you're in is the name I'm in, the God that I know is the God you know. We have a oneness, brothers and sisters, that cannot be denied, and yet we live that oneness practically, and that's what Jesus prays. May this oneness be lived in the context of their relations with one another. So he prays we live it practically, that we would be one in love. That we would be one in purpose. And therefore one in word. And in action. This oneness then, in your handout, is the visible sign to us that we have eternal life. And it's the sign you're being kept. Because the more that oneness is lived out, that's the sign that God is indeed keeping you. That he's keeping me in that eternal life until the end. And so once again, our eternal life can never be separated from our oneness. And we should be able to see by now that our oneness can never be separated from our holiness. Eternal life, put it together now, eternal life, Holiness and oneness are all of a piece together. And so Jesus leaves the world. As he leaves the world, he goes to the Father. And what does he pray for you and for me? Who are still in the world. Here we are. What does he pray for us? This should tell us. (laughs) I mean, this is the moment to pray what's most needed to be prayed. And this is what he prays. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may always be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Let's come back to security. 
When Jesus was keeping and guarding, how effective was his keeping and guarding on a, on a percentage scale? When Jesus was keeping and guarding, how effective was his keeping and guarding? What percent would you rate it at? Yeah, I'm hearing some 100%. Yeah, 100%. What about Judas? And the question to you is this. Did Jesus fail in guarding Judas? All of us are going to say no. But maybe we ought to ask this. Now I have to ask this. Is Jesus saying that it's not ultimately his guarding that determines your eternal life, but rather your own hearts and choices? Ultimately, I'm talking about ultimately. You have... The Bible is clear about this, and we need to be clear too. In other words, we could say, no, no, Jesus was 100% effectual. He guarded perfectly. It's just that Judas didn't avail himself of that guarding, right? That's a slander against our Lord Jesus Christ and the ultimate blow at our own true security and peace and joy. That ought to be a terrifying thought to us. So there's mystery here, but let's acknowledge with Joy that the keeping and guarding power of God is what's ultimately determinative of my inheritance of the fullness of eternal life. Those that God keeps, those that God guards, will not, cannot, ever, under any circumstance, perish. Why? Because God keeps them. Because God guards them. Which is to say, Judas, therefore, was not among those that Jesus was keeping in the Father's name. How do we know that? Because how effectual is Jesus keeping? 100%. If he had been, he couldn't possibly have perished. Judas chose freely to go his own way. He went out from the disciples, as John says, because he was not ultimately of the disciples, because he never had eternal life. And even this, John says, was so the word of God would be fulfilled. When Jesus was keeping and guarding those who belonged to the Father and whom the Father gave to him, his keeping and guarding was 100% in your handout, 100% effectual. Not one of them perished. Now he prays as he leaves the world and he comes to the Father. And brothers and sisters, what does he pray? That the Father would continue keeping and guarding you and me in exactly the same way. And I'll ask you this. Is there any doubt in your mind that the prayer of Jesus will be answered, the prayer he prayed for you? Is there any doubt in your mind it'll be answered? Can there be any doubt that the Father's keeping and guarding will also be 100% effectual? Right. And yet we remember his keeping and guarding is not an automatic mechanistic, fatalistic thing. Watch this. The Father keeps us 
not just for eternal life at the end, because that's what we like. Oh, God's keeping me for this wonderful thing at the end. No, God is keeping us in. In eternal life now. Do you see the difference? So some people, when they get to this whole idea of eternal security, it leads them to this apathetic state, to this idea of just sit back and relax. And, and because it's this idea that God is keeping me for something at the end, and they fail to realize that part of God's keeping is that he's keeping us in that same thing now. Not just for eternal life at the end, but in eternal life now. That is the beauty. That is the power. That is the miracle of God's keeping you and keeping me. And so we go on to read in verses 13 to 17. But now I come to you. In other words, he's not, he's not saying I come to you in prayer. He's saying now I'm coming to you. I'm going to leave them. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. The And he's talking here about the joy that he has in keeping the Father's commandments and abiding in his love, right? We know that from John 15. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them. And so if you want to take one word away from this morning's message, certainly it's this key word in John 17, which is to be kept, to keep keeping, keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart in holiness and in oneness by the truth. Your word is truth. This this world lies in the power of the evil one. Its values and its priorities are shaped by the evil one. Now, we're going to come back next week, and we're going to see how this all relates again to the world. Okay? We're going to see it at a different angle, because Jesus continues, but this is this week. So the world's in the power of the evil one. Its values, its priorities are shaped by the evil one. So here's the question at the end. What is the means by which God keeps us? Is this just some, like, as it were, magical thing that is just happening? Well, no, God uses means. And what is the means by which he is currently keeping you? Yeah. Keeps us by his word. And I, I want to be careful here, because when I say the word, and I, I believe that every word, jot, and tittle of this book in the original languages is verbally inspired, infallible, inspired by God. But when he refers to the word, he's not referring to, as it were, Genesis 26 or Leviticus 3, or the words on the page by itself. He's referring to a whole revelation of a whole person. He keeps us by his word, And what is this word? It's the word of truth, which he gave to who? Jesus. And which Jesus gave to us. We could put it like this. God is keeping you in his name by the revelation of his name. 
Right? He keeps you in his name by always using the revelation of his name to us that he's given to us in Jesus. And so I just want to say this, that, you know, this to me is why we're here. This is why we gather every Sunday. Why do we gather? Why do we hear? Why are we here? And it is to hear the word of truth read and preached. It is to pray the word of truth. It is to sing the word of truth. This is why we gather every Sunday. It is to immerse ourselves in the revelation of the Father's name through Jesus Christ. That's why we come. And so we could say this. We're not here. We're not gathered so we can be more moral. We're not gathered so we can learn something new. We're gathered so that we might be kept in eternal life. That's why we're gathered. And this knowledge that we are kept, therefore, is not, an, you know, because we, again, look at this. How do some people say, well, I'm good. If I don't go to church, I'll be fine. Well, how does God keep his people? Through his word. Through the preaching of the word of truth. Through the means of grace that we have on Sunday. That's how you're being kept until the final day. So to, to abandon that beautiful means of grace is to abandon the means by which God keeps those who are his. The knowledge that we are kept then is not an incentive to apathy, but to the utmost exertions on our part. The more you know you're kept, the more you'll exert yourself. So let's put it like this. You, 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 do, you do the thinking here. Okay, we're being kept, not just for eternal life at the end, but what in your handout, in eternal life now. Therefore, since we know what eternal life is, that means we must always seek to be growing in our knowledge of the only true God in Jesus Christ to be sent. A relational knowing, loving, being loved. Secondly, we're being kept not just for holiness at the end. Because I like to say that one day we're all going to be blameless, right? We're all going to be perfectly holy. Stand before God in his presence. But, but the p- fact is, we're not just being kept for that holiness at the end. We're being kept in holiness. Now, that's the beauty of God's keeping. Therefore, we always seek to be conforming ourselves to be being conformed, not to the values and priorities of this world, but to the image and likeness of God. As he's shown us that image in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And thirdly, we're being kept not just for oneness at the end. Some of us, I think, are like, well, one day we'll all be one. In the meantime, in the meantime. But there is a reality, true. We never be one today like we will be one day. But God is keeping us not just for oneness then, but in oneness now. When you know that, What does that drive you to do? What does it drive me to do? To always seek to be more and more one in love, in purpose, therefore in word and action, even as the Father and the Son are one. Now then, to put it the other way around, here's the good news. We seek these things. Why? Because we're in your handout, kept. 
We are kept in these things. And because the one who keeps us has promised us, has promised you, that he will never, ever, ever lose you. So it's when we are seeking these things that the joy of Jesus is made full in us. When we're seeking eternal life, oneness, holiness, that's when the joy of Jesus is made full in us. It was Jesus' promise. It's when we're seeking these things that, therefore, remember what's the whole point of this prayer? The glory of God. So it's when we're seeking these things that God is glorified more and more in us. And lastly, it is in and through, not on the basis of, but in and through our seeking of these things, that we will one day arrive at the fullest experience of eternal life. When we are with Jesus where he is, we see his glory. The glory he had with the Father before the world was. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm weak. I, I, I need your spirit to open up my eyes to these eternal truths and to conform me to, to your word. And I, I so thank you. We thank you that as we are confronted with our weakness, that you are strong. That as we see this reality, that, that we, apart from your sovereign keeping power, would go astray. How we delight to be reminded that we are safe, that we are secure, and your all-powerful keeping love. And Lord, as we rest in that, as we, as we come to see our security, not just as a, as a, as a fact, but as, but as something beautiful and lovely that you are daily working in us, that you are doing this work, Lord, as we grasp that, as we comprehend what's been going on all along, even, so, even though so often we feel oblivious to it, we thank you that, that as we grasp it, it moves us then to the utmost exertions, to striving like we never have before, to seeking like we never sought before. And so we thank you, Lord, that Jesus' prayer will be answered. And even as he prayed, we pray, Lord, Father, keep us. Keep us who live still in this world, in your name, that we may be one, even as you are one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.